Well, good morning again. I think they stole the Ebenezer verse. Did you notice that? I built it all up and explained what it meant, and then we, we didn't sing the sign of victory, unless I missed it. Um, okay. We'll make sure we add. Maybe they removed it because it is such an odd term. I'm not sure. I'll find, I will find that out through investigation. Uh, this morning, we're beginning a six-week series on the parables of Jesus Christ. Uh, perhaps a good subtitle, because you see this in the Gospels, is uh, when God sat down to teach. Now, again, he wasn't always sitting when he taught, but there's this picture of Jesus sitting down in this boat and then just instructing. You know, what would it be like if God taught you personally? Well, you have it in the Gospels. You have it throughout his entire word. Uh, what is a parable? Okay, a parable is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. The word parable in Greek means to place two things side by side to compare for the purpose of clarification. Parables are not exact allegories. Perhaps one of the most popular allegories is John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, where every character, every event, even a slough has a spiritual meaning. For instance, the slough of despond, worldly wise man, the flatterer. Parables don't measure up like that. Many times parables have a core simple truth and every single detail is not meant to mean something spiritual. A few parables have allegorical elements, for example, the one we're looking at this morning, or the parable of the wicked tenants in Mark 12. They would be called allegorical parables, but those would be the exception to the rule. Parables are stories about human activity, like a farmer going out to a field and sowing, that actually become narratives about heavenly realities. David Garland, in his commentary, said this, Parables are not homely stories for sluggish minds or visual aids designed to illustrate a simple point. The teaching is indirect and requires an investment of imagination and thought to seek their meaning for us. If one refuses to make that investment, then one will find no meaning in Jesus' parables. So in a sense, parables are meant both to veil and unveil. And we'll explain that more in a second. There is a, a clear structure to the parables. Um, many of the parables have three main characters. For instance, maybe one of the, the, the most well-known is the parable of the prodigal son. You have the father, you have the prodigal son, you have the older brother. And there's typically, in a parable, there's typically an authority figure with two subordinates. And it's the authority figure, and because of that, they're called monarchical Parables because of this monarch, this primary character on top, and in how he relates. And in, in the original readership, they would have expected this one subordinate to act a certain way, and he doesn't. And yet his perceived wicked counterpart acts righteously in how you would have expected the other one to respond. Okay, so these parables, again, they're intended to veil and unveil by contrasting behavior. So if you look at it, just if you think of a triangle and you read the parables, you'll see that most parables fall into the shape of a triangle. So, so at the top of the triangle, you would have the master or the king. Then you would have a good subordinate and a bad subordinate or a wicked subordinate. Or up here you have the father. Then you have the focal character 
and a peripheral character to sort of contrast and compare. In the story of the prodigal, again, you have the father, you have the younger brother, the prodigal, and the older brother, also a prodigal in his own way. Okay, so you gotta, you gotta see this. It's really, it's really the, the parable of the two lost sons in different ways. Uh, classification, how do we classify them? And all this is just preliminary material and I'm, I'm flying through this for sake of time. I find Craig Blumberg's classification helpful in that he divides the parables by the points they make. For example, simple three-point parables. When you look at it, you just see this simple triangle, boom, boom, boom. The prodigal son, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the children in the marketplace. Then you have complex three-point parables where it's not just a simple triangle, but it's, it is three points, but then they branch off into three more and three more. And then you have two-point and one-point parables, the easiest to understand, the rich fool, the barren fig tree, the mustard seed, the leaven. And I'll explain this more in the coming weeks. So when we consider the parable of the sower, or probably more accurately, the parable of the soils, uh, it'll fall into that structure. It is a complex three-point parable. Aren't you glad we chose a complex one for our first parable? So a complex three-point parable meaning it has more than three main characters or three main points or groups. So this is, this is how we're going to see it. And you heard, you heard when Alan read it, you have, okay, bring the triangle back. You have the sower, you have fruitful seed, and you have unfruitful seed. That's going to go down into, and Jesus will break it in his teaching, to unfruitful seed, seed on the path, seed on the rocks, seed among thorns. And then he's going to go over to the fruitful seed, and it's going to also be in a triangular shape. Fruitful seed, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Okay, so that's why it is called a complex three-point parable. I am not going to reread the text, uh, but I do want to consider each point as we move through this. Uh, The setting, right again, he's teaching beside the sea. In Mark's Gospel, as soon as you come to Mark chapter 4, Jesus has already called his disciples. He has already entered into public ministry. And he has already met stiff opposition. You're going to see that in Mark chapter 3 where he is in the synagogue among religious leaders on the Sabbath day. And he does good and he is hated for it. He's He's in a completely pervasive religious environment and the Pharisees go out and they try to plan a plot to kill him. Okay, this is already happening. So, so Mark's gospel happens very fast. So out of the synagogue, he starts teaching by the sea. And this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because it's not uncommon for synagogues and mosques and churches to kick Jesus out. Because they're too busy being religious, they don't have time to hear the Word. They don't have time to receive the Word who has become flesh. So no longer welcome in the synagogues, he finds a new teaching venue. He's out by the sea. There's such a big crowd coming down. He steps out into the boat. The boat gets pushed out. And he starts to teach them sort of in a natural amphitheater setting so his voice would carry. Verse 2 says this, And he was teaching them many things, In parables, Jesus is going to start to place common understood activities next to human realities. 
And in verse 2, the latter part, he says, and in his teaching, he said to them, listen to how he begins, verse 3. Listen. Matter of fact, that, 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 that command to listen, this verb to, to listen, to hear, is going to bookend this parable. Because look down at verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him what? Let him hear. The command to hear is the first word in the Shema. That is what the Jews used to recite, faithful Jews used to recite daily. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This would have been in Jesus' mind. A matter of fact, in Mark 12, same account of the gospel, when he is asked, when he is, when he is being trapped by lawyers, he was asked, which commandment is the most important of all? And how does he respond? He responds by quoting the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And he says this, Hear, O Israel, listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the greatest command. The verb to hear appears twice in the quotation from Isaiah, which is a little bit enigmatic, meaning it's, it almost sounds like God is trying to hide, hide truth so people don't get saved. Right? We need to address that so we, we actually understand what we're reading. But the word to hear appears twice in the Isaiah quote, and it appears about 14 times in different forms in Mark chapter 4 alone. So let's hear. Let's listen. So hearing becomes the key word in the interpretation of the parable of the sower. So let's look at the parable. Look at verse 3. Behold, a sower went out to sow. Now, use your imagination. He's sitting there in the boat. He's got this large crowd on, on sort of the shoreline. And perhaps he sees a farmer up on a hillside. And he is seeing a living illustration of what they call broadcasting. They reach into a sort of a leather pouch or a cloth pouch and they just, they cast the seed. And he says, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, verse 4, something happened. And then he introduces us to the soils. There are four different kinds of soils. There is a hard soil, there is a rocky soil, there is a thorny soil, and there is good soil. And by the way, the lack of fruitfulness is not with the farmer, or the seed. The lack of fruitfulness comes from the soil, which Jesus is going to make that point in verse 4. As he sowed, some seed fell where? Along what? Along the path. Uh, many of you have traveled. Many of you uh, have lived in rural areas, even in the United States. And if you have a field, there are going to be common pathways where you drive the tractor, okay? And then, you know, just for the, the running course and where you you sort of deal with it more fragile. And in Africa, we would see this very often. You would have these hard, compacted footpaths around the field where only the farmer would go in and tend to his crops. So some of the seed, not on purpose, but as he was spreading the seed, some of it fell on that hard footpath where everybody knew if I'm going to cut through this area, I'm going to stay on the path. I'm not going to walk on the field. That seed falls on that hard ground. He says this. Oh, and by the way, because it's sitting there, uh, the birds came and they devoured it. That's normal, right? 
Everybody understands that in Jesus' teaching. This is a very normal sort of cause-effect. You throw seed there, it's sitting there. When the farmer leaves, the birds come down and they start eating it. Number five, he's, he talks about the rocky ground. Interesting, it's not that the farmer casts seed into the midst of a bunch of rocks. It is probably a rock ledge, sort of a rock shelf underneath a thin layer of soil. Matter of fact, he's going to explain that because it said, since it had no depth of soil, means there was some soil on top, when the sun rose, it was scorched. Because it had no root, it withered away. It looked like the rest of the field. But it's not like the rest of the field. Okay, so the thin, shallow soil caused two effects. It caused quick germination of the seed. But then because it was able to put the roots down through that rock shelf, it withered and died. Here's the third ground. Look at verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Now, we're going to assume the farmer prepared his field. The thorns were cut down, but there was probably still the roots of the thorns within the soil, much like a nine-year-old picking up dandelions. Have you ever seen that? Right? They pull the heads off. What's still there? And what grows back even stronger and more yellow? Okay, I'm not picking on nine-year-olds, okay? Thirteen-year-olds, right? Right? The pull... And then it's still there. I mean, we can have a beautifully weeded, not we, I didn't mean we, that was the corporate we, right? We can have a beautifully weeded garden, and a week later, guess what pops back up? Prickers and dandelions, because why? The roots were not dug out. So some seed goes into that area, and listen to what he says, and the thorns grew up. Why? Because it had, it had found root already, and the roots were stronger And the seed, the good seed, the new grain was no contest for the strong weeds of the roots of the strong roots of the weeds. And then he goes to verse eight and other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30 fold and 60 fold and 100 fold. And he said, he has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's really all he gives at this point. A sower goes forth to sow, and when, he, and when he throws the seed out, it lands on four different kinds of soil. And here are the effects of all four. Now, rather than jump to Jesus' interpretation, Mark records a short interlude. Look at verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, so this is not just the disciples, there's sort of this inside-outside comparison. So it's not just that the disciples are on the inside, but others who joined, others who were starting to perceive, others who had good soil in their heart came and he says, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, and here Jesus quotes Isaiah, that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So a couple of interpretive difficulties in this passage. First of all, what is the meaning of the kingdom of God? or the secret of the kingdom of God, it does not mean unknowable because Jesus came to reveal God in the flesh. 
They cannot perceive that God in the flesh is the eternal word, right? That's what it says in John chapter one. In the beginning was the what was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And later on down in verse 14, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. These people do not yet perceive that God in the flesh through the sowing of truth will actually be led to crucifixion, but then experience and see and witness the resurrection. Listen to what Jesus said of himself in John 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, now listen to what he says. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's easy to preach on the parable of the sowers and just make a quick application of different levels of hearing and responding. And that's there. Jesus, having already met stiff opposition, is saying, there are people and the seed has fallen. And there are hard hearts that have rejected him. A matter of fact, he's in their very midst and they have kicked him out of their religious centers. And there are people that are so distracted and so impulsive that they haven't even considered the cost. The parables point beyond themselves to the kingdom in the process of coming and of people responding differently to the king and the kingdom. So in verse 12, so, so the secret of the kingdom is something that was hidden but is now revealed, but that can only be known by divine revelation, by divine help. In verse 12, Jesus references Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, where a distinction is drawn. Look at the distinction. So that there's, there's a distinction between seeing and what word? Perceiving. And Alan picked this up in his prayer. A difference between hearing and understanding. All of you have heard my voice this morning. But I fear not all of us will understand this parable this morning. You can go out and preach the good news of Jesus Christ and they will hear the facts of that message. But many will not perceive or understand it in their heart. That is what Jesus is teaching. And without his help, without divine help, they will never understand that he is the word sent into the world, scattered throughout the earth, and there will be different responses to the Son of God. Look at the last phrase in verse 12. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, when you run into a statement that seems to teach something you're not familiar with, it probably teaches something you're not familiar with, but it might not be the exact interpretation you've landed on. Uh, for instance, you've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. And Peter's going to say that God is not willing that any should what? That any should perish. And Jesus came and he said, I have come to do the will of my father and to make him known. So what does this mean? Well, it is an Old Testament quote from Isaiah chapter six. And it's helpful for interpreting, interpreting what is meant here by considering that context. So here's what is happening in Isaiah six. God tells Isaiah, the prophet to go and preach 
and warn a people. But before he goes and he preaches, God warns Isaiah that they're only going to harden their hearts at your preaching. You're not going to meet with success. You're going to be unpopular. So you have, so, so you have this, this prophet sent on a mission of seeming failure. Read the book of Isaiah. It is overwhelming at the lack of seeming success that Isaiah meets. And in Isaiah 6, God is going to say they're, they're actually not going to listen until I carry out punishment against them. So let me read to you a broader section of Isaiah 6. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, Isaiah, responding to the Lord, how long, O Lord? Listen to the answer. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And listen to what he closes with. The holy seed is its stump. They're not going to listen to you, Isaiah, until I bring disaster upon this people. God calls a faithful prophet to preach to a faithless people. And by the way, how is Jesus' ministry described? He came unto his own and his own what? His own received him not. Jesus' explanation for the parables has the same tone. They're not going to get it until Jesus is crucified. They're not really going to get it until he rises from the dead. Some will never get it until they stand before God's judgment. So this passage from Isaiah is quoted several times in the New Testament, not just here. And it denotes in each place a judicial blindness. Meaning God is just by causing a blindness to fall on people who have willfully hardened their hearts against the truth. They have willingly walked in darkness when the light has appeared. And they have willingly rejected the Son of God. There's a whole parable about that. The parable of the evil tenants. God sends His messengers. He sends His messengers and they kill Him. They systematically kill each messenger one by one. And He says, I'm going to send My Son. Surely they'll listen to My Son. And they kill Him too. Jesus' parables required of His hearers no special knowledge or vocabulary to understand but they cannot be understood by hardened hearts or impulsive hearts or worldly distracted hearts. By the way, God's revelation reveals the blindness and the hardness in groups of people that will surprise you. Listen to where the blindness shows up. In religious authorities. Among the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the people that are actually handling the word are blind to the word. Jesus' nearest relatives 
Even as disciples, when they refuse to be untethered to old ways of perceiving and evaluating. Matthew Henry wisely said this. A parable is a shell that keeps good fruit for the diligent, but keeps it from the slothful. That's a great picture. What is it about the parable of the sower that makes it a paradigm for all other parables? Do you remember the words that Jesus said? Do you understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? Sort of, so the, the parable of the sower, and the reason we're, we're hitting this one first, is because Jesus introduces it sort of as a paradigm. Hey, if you can't get this one, you're not going to get the rest of them. Because this parable, unlike many others, does not start with the kingdom of heaven is like, remember that, that formula? A mustard seed. Or the kingdom of heaven is like, dot, 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 the kingdom of, this one doesn't have that formula. And I believe that is because this parable describes how the kingdom begins in a person's heart. It explains how the kingdom of God is received and how it grows and brings forth fruit. And this parable also exposes counterfeits to those who profess to be on their way to the kingdom, but it's simply a parade. It's not really the case. As the Apostle Paul said, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And that word has been scattered throughout the world and there are different responses to the message. So this is not... Let us be clear, this is not about different levels of discipleship. And oh, I just happen to have a hard, cynical heart right now. Or I just happen to, you know, things are choking out God right now. Or, you know, I'm just a little busy and I, I, I do love things more than I love God. Okay, if that, is, if that is a habitual stance of your heart, this parable is going to say, you're not understanding. You've rejected the word. You've rejected the Son. It's not about different levels of discipleship. It's about Jesus, the Gospel, salvation, the Kingdom, and whether one has life at all or not. So let's look at the interpretation. Look at verse 14. By the way, this is only one of two parables where Jesus provides an interpretation. Some of the other parables, they just kind of floats them out there and you've got to perceive what it means. But this is one where we have an interpretation. So verse 14, the sower sows the word. Okay, the sower is never identified. The seed is, but the sower is not. The seed is the word. Both the seed and the word are alive. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living. And, and can, we, can we note this? The sower is sort of this anonymous character. We're not told who he is, so let's not sort of pull ignorance and try to put names on it. He's anonymous. Made me think of 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul asks, who then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. That, that, by the way, that term means galley rowers. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. The Apostle Paul is warning against sort of making celebrity status of farmers, of preachers, 
of missionaries. Who are they? They're servants. But God gives the increase. Oh, this one's really popular. Why? Look at the numbers. Isaiah had no numbers. Jonah did. There's a clear distinction in character between Isaiah and Jonah. Later on, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Why? Because the seed is alive. The word is alive. Look at verse 15. These are the ones along the path. Oh, so there's an analogy here. People and terrain. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. The analogy of people and terrain. Some people are like a hardened footpath. They hear it and the seed just sits there on the surface and Satan comes and his work is quick and effective and he takes the seed and it never finds reception because the heart is like a hardened path. Again, in Mark 3, when, when Jesus heals the man on a Sabbath, it says that he looked around at them with anger at the Pharisees and the people standing in judgment upon Jesus And he was grieved at their hardness of heart. God was standing in their midst, doing a miracle, and they were critical. Look at verse 16. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. So the analogy here, people and plants. Some people are like plants on rocky ground that lack roots. They fall away during the heat of tribulation or persecution. These people at some point... Received the word and they received it gladly. They may have raised a hand. They may have walked an aisle. They may have said a prayer. And we counted them. Check. Listen to Jesus' words in John 6. Of course, he preaches a very difficult sermon. And it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The attrition was so much, he looks at his own disciples and he says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the word. You are sowing living seed. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Is Jesus a failure because no one followed him anymore except the twelve? We must be very careful of celebrating superficial statistics and cheering people on with a false eternal security. Did you do this? Did you say this? Did you mean it? You're good to go. That's not what this parable is teaching. Those things may have been involved in you bowing your heart to, a, to God and to Jesus as Lord. They may have been aspects, but they did not save you. Time and circumstance are very effective at revealing true disciples of Christ. Time and circumstances. Much of what calls itself Christian in the West has yet to be proven by tribulation and persecution. And I fear when that time comes, it will be true of Mark 4, verse 17. They immediately 
fall away. Look at verse 18. He gets to the third analogy, people and a field. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Some people are like a field with thorns in it. The Word of God takes a disputed hold on them, but it's choked out by other gods, by other idols. Divided interest and affection in spiritual matters, folks, is, is fatal. Now, in the first three soil heart conditions, there is no life. None of the cedar plants survive. Look at the, look at the final soil condition, verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Again, the, and the analogy here is people and good soil. Some people are like good soil. They hear the word. They receive the word. They believe in Jesus, obey his words, and bear fruit. Paul, like Jesus, quotes from the prophet Isaiah in Romans 10. Listen to what Paul says and, 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 and see the connection. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But. People responded differently. So James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Let me, let me finish with just one more passage of scripture and then an overview and then I'm going to pray. James, after he says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. So hearing in, in Jesus' idea of listening and hearing is a move to action. James asks, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. No, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You can have a perfect doctrinal statement. But if there is an evidence of fruitfulness in your life, that faith does not save. Because a faith that saves is a faith that brings forth fruit. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Is your life producing fruit because you have received Jesus Christ as Lord, as the Word become flesh, as Savior? Is it producing in you any measure of observable fruit? Even Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. Here are the three points as they fall into place. Like the sower, God's Word is spread widely among all kinds of people throughout the world. And we need to continue spreading the word in Centennial and Littleton and South Denver to the ends of the earth. 
Like the three kinds of unfruitful soil, many will respond to his word with hardness, impulsiveness, or with distraction. And like the fruitful soil, the only legitimate response to Jesus and God's word is the obedience and perseverance which demonstrate true regeneration. Jesus said this, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? No. Are figs gathered from thistles? No. So a truly regenerate person will have fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Let's pray.